you have your Bibles, open up to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6. If you don't have a Bible, you're welcome to use a black Bible in the pews in front of you. This morning we're going to start reading, uh, we'll probably start reading in verse 14 for the sake of context, but our verses that I'm going to be preaching from this morning are going to be verses 18 through 20, but we'll start reading together in verse 14. Uh, Hear the word of the Lord. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace, in all circumstances, Take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. This is God's holy, inspired, inerrant, and infallible word. Amen. Father, we pray this morning that you would help us to hear as we ought to hear, that our hearts would be open and attentive and receptive and full of joy and readiness to receive from you. Father, I I pray specifically the same prayer as the Apostle Paul, Lord, give me words that I ought to speak And help me to proclaim your word with the boldness uh, that the gospel deserves. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. Uh, It cannot be overstated how important uh, communication is in warfare. It cannot be overstated. So we saw last week uh, that, that Paul is saying that we as Christians, we are at war. Our entire lives is one long engagement in spiritual battle. This week we're going to be talking in large part about how we communicate in battle. There's a reason why every combat unit that's deployed forward into combat has a radio guy or the comms guy, the the guy who carries the big, bulky, heavy radio around with him. The, The comms guy is responsible for communication between the front, those who are engaged in battle, in the rear, those who are offering support for the battle. So if you run out of ammunition, comms is how you secure more of it. If you need water or gasoline, you radio in for more. If you look to the east and you see a click away, uh, other soldiers are being overrun by the enemy, comms is how you call in backup and support for them. If you are being overrun and you need an airstrike, comms is how you call that airstrike in. Paul tells us in this morning's text that this is how prayer functions in spiritual warfare. Prayer is the means by which we appropriate the weaponry and the armor of spiritual warfare that Paul told us about last week. That is how we use it. That's how we put it to use. Now, you'll notice in your English Bibles that Paul mentions prayer four times in verse 18 alone. Right? So if you look at verse 18, he says, 
praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. That word supplication, it's a prayer kind of word. Now, uh, I did some rooting around in the Greek on these uh, two English words you have here, repeated twice, prayer and supplication. And uh, as it turns out, they mean prayer and supplication. So we're good to go on that. Uh, the prayer word here is generally in the Bible used to refer to just speaking to God, communicating with God, but it is used almost exclusively by the Apostle Paul in his letters to refer to something called intercession. Right? So intercession is just when uh, I see that you need something and I go to God on your behalf. Right? So remember my illustration, my analogy, I see some soldiers off to the east, they're being overrun, I know that they need help backup support, so I call in for that backup and support, that is what intercession is. Supplication is just asking God to supply your needs, right? You can even see it, and if you break the word down, right? Supplication, supply. I need God to supplicate, to supply me. I'm going to ask God to give me something that I need, that I don't have, that only He can give me. Now, both of these words... Both of these realities in prayer, intercession and supplication, uh, they make perfect sense in Paul's wartime picture of the Christian experience. We, God's people, are on the front lines of battle against sin and Satan and the world. And therefore, we need to be supplied from outside of ourselves. And so we communicate with God in order to request that which we may need in order to continue on in battle, not just for ourselves, but also for others who are engaged in battle. And because we have this clear line of communication with God, we can engage in the battle with complete confidence and boldness. So I've got two points for you this morning, but I want to try to summarize the entire sermon for you in one sentence and then we'll see those two points through that one sentence, okay? So here's the sentence, note takers. Communicate with God for confidence in proclaiming the gospel. Or you could say it like, we can have confidence in communicating the gospel the more we communicate with God. Okay? So your two points this morning are along those lines. Communication with God and communicating the gospel or proclaiming the gospel. Point number one, communicating with God. Uh, Paul tells us five things that we should pray uh, in these last days uh, where spiritual warfare reigns. Or not five things that we should pray. He tells us five things about how we should pray in light of this spiritual warfare. And those are going to kind of be sub-points. I'm going to give them to you as we go, okay? So in light of the reality of spiritual warfare, our prayer needs to be, number one, constant. Constant. You can see it in verse 18. There, Paul says, praying at all times. Other translations may read, at every opportunity, the idea is the same. We need to always be praying. It's, it's super simple. Uh, I have known brothers and sisters who hear this command from Paul and they kind of take it as a burden. Right? These are typically the people who are more performance-oriented. Right? They're like, yeah, give me a task. Tell me what I need to do. Right? And that's, kind of, that's a lot of times how they approach their relationship with God. You know, God, what do you want from me? Tell me what to do, and I'll do it. You, know, you just give me the bullet points, and I'm going to go get it done. I'm going to get it knocked out. 
And if that's the way you view prayer, then the idea that you have to be praying at all times, well, I can see how that would be burdensome, right? I think about my Muslim friends who, you know, their view of prayer is, you know, five times a day, I have to lay a carpet down, I have to face in a certain direction towards a particular holy site, and I have to pray these words in this way, and maybe if I do, the Lord will be pleased, and he'll be happy with what I've communicated, and then he'll respond, maybe, hopefully. And if it seems like that's a caricature of, of the Muslim prayer, it's not. And we kind of have our own evangelical version of that, right? I, I don't have to leave our own house in order to pick on us in prayers. We, we can feel like, oh, if I don't say the exact right thing in the exact right way with the, with the right theological words, and you know, if I don't make sure I say in Jesus' name at the end, then he's not going to hear me. And, and so we have our own unique way of making prayer a burden. But that's, that's, that's the opposite of what prayer is supposed to be. Prayer is supposed to be something that God has given us to, to aid us, to support us, to comfort us, to give us what we need, not to add a burden to our shoulders. So let me just like, keep it as simple as possible. This is so simple, you're probably going to be thinking, why do we pay this guy to do this? But that's probably some of the best preaching that ever happens from this pulpit. I just want to tell you this morning that prayer is nothing more than you just talking with God. It's just nothing more than you communicating with the Lord who made you. You can say the words out loud. You can say them privately in your heart. You can pray them when you're driving. You can pray them in the shower. You can pray them while you're eating a burger on the run. You can pray them uh, on your bedside, at your bedside, on your knees. You can pray them standing in a circle, holding hands. I'm getting kind of Dr. Susie now, but you, you get the point. You know, you can pray it in a hat with a bat and a rat. You can pray it any way you want to. The point is, your prayers, they just need to be sincere and genuine. And as long as you know the Lord and you're talking to the Lord, those prayers mean something to the Lord. And if you really understand your great need in light of this spiritual warfare that we are engaged in, and God's great power, if you really understand those two realities, then you will be praying at all times. It won't be something that you necessarily have to work on. It'll just be a reality in your life. You'll feel the constant weight of your weakness. You'll trust in the supreme goodness and power of God and the promises he's made you in the gospel, and you will cling to those promises through prayer, and you will find yourself constantly praying. I have prayed more as a pastor and then prior to that as a missionary than any other time in my Christian experience, and I don't think it's because I've become more holy. I think it's because I have felt the constant weight of my need in this spiritual warfare, and I've had to cling more desperately to God's promises in the gospel, and so I feel like I'm just constantly being driven to prayer. That's a reality that doesn't have to just exist for pastors and missionaries. That should be a reality that exists for all of us when we understand what the Bible says about our great need and God's great power. I hope you see this reality on display in the life of our church. Right? I hope you just notice how much we pray. We pray a lot in this church because we need a lot. And we realize that we, we can't give ourselves the things that we need. So in our elders' meetings, we stop and we pray after each item on the agenda. We don't want to just talk about something and say, yeah, I think we pretty much covered that. 
You know, like all wisdom really rule the day here. No, Lord, we need you to do something in this situation, whether it's about a budget issue or a member in the church who's caught in sin or somebody who's dealing with uh, suffering. We just need you to move here, Lord. In our members' meetings, you probably notice after every uh, item on the agenda, we stop and we pray as a congregation and ask the Lord to move on our behalf. Whenever I'm having a conversation with someone in the church about some matter in private, I try not to end that conversation without praying about it. I don't always, but I try to in light of these realities. In our services, we pray so much, so much that it should be obvious to anyone who's an outsider that we view ourselves as a people who are very needy and who believe in a very powerful God. You guys should know that I feel the weight of how much we pray in Sunday services. You don't think that I don't know that if we sang a little less, if I preached a little shorter, and if we didn't have two 10-minute prayers that our church would probably be a little bit bigger? You don't think I know that? And yet I kill that nerve every time I think about it. I cauterize it. I don't care about that. I care, but I don't care. What I really care about is living out this reality that we are desperately in need of God. And we need him to move. And so I want us to pray so much in this congregation that people who aren't interested in God and people who don't view themselves as being in needy of God, they're uncomfortable here. And this should be our mentality in every area of our lives in regards to prayer. When we have an issue with our children, we should strive as parents to just sit down and talk about it. And then afterwards say, okay, well, we've talked about it. Now let's go to the Lord and ask him to move on our behalf. When we have a dust-up with our spouse, we should take that as an invitation to take our marriage to God in prayer. When we're wrestling with temptation, we should also view that as, a, as an invitation from the Lord to depend upon him in prayer, to appropriate his spiritual armor and weaponry through prayer. And just so on and so on and so on. Difficult life decisions when we're discouraged, when we're full of joy. Regardless, we should take it all to the Lord in prayer at all times because our need never changes. And God's power never runs low. Our prayer life should reflect that reality. Number two, in light of the spiritual warfare, our prayer should be vigilant. Our prayer should be vigilant. Look at the middle of verse 18. He says, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication, to that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. Keep alert with all perseverance. This language here is the language that you see throughout the rest of the New Testament that's always connected to spiritual wakefulness. This, this idea of being alert and persevering, right? Uh, think about somebody who has been at war and they're tired, They've, the battle's been raging, they're posted at the city gates to watch out for the enemies and it, and it doesn't matter that they haven't slept in 48 hours. If they go to sleep on the job and the enemies come and storm the walls of the protected zone, people are going to die. So you have to keep alert. You have to stay awake. You have to be vigilant. A pastor friend of mine uh, recently shared about a woman from Vietnam who's now living in America, and she told her husband, I think I want to go back home to Vietnam. Now, if you know about Vietnam, you know that's a, a pretty incredible thing for her to say. And the reason why she said it is, she says, 
I feel like I'm being lulled to sleep here in the West. I feel like I'm getting drowsy. I think we all feel that way with comfort and ease. It feels like Satan is making us drowsy in this land. We're losing our vigilance. But like a, like a sentry who is on guard at, at, at the city gates, we must not give in to the urge to go to sleep. We must remain awake and alert and vigilant. In basic training, when you're learning how to be a soldier, you go and you clear cities and you have to do these really long road marches. And some of these road marches, they last for hours, you know. And it's supposed to be training. Imagine you're waging war in one city and you've got to march the troops over to another city and you're, you know, that's a 20-mile walk maybe. Over the course of 20 miles, if you're tired and hungry and sleepy, the odds are at some point during that, during that march, you're going to kind of get out of it. You're going to stop paying attention. You're not going to be actively looking around at your surroundings. And so the drill sergeants are trying to train you, and they tell you, don't go to sleep. Don't let your attention be drawn away. Don't get distracted. Keep your head on a swivel. Why? Because we are most at danger when we are most complacent. Seasoned veterans know better. That's why the best drill sergeants have actually been to battle. They've done those long road marches. They've gone from Ramadi to another Iraqi city and had people jump out at them halfway through the march and shoot at them. So they're, they're doing that march with those soldiers and they're telling them, don't go to sleep. Keep your head on a swivel. Stay awake, stay awake keep alert, remain vigilant. And that is what Paul is telling us about prayer. Do not underestimate how easy it is to fall asleep. I remember in basic training, running off of no sleep at all, being exhausted all the time, standing there at a range where we have to go qualify with our rifles with 50 pounds of battle rattle on, with, a, with an M16 in my hand, and 150 rifles going off around me. And I remember standing there and falling asleep. Don't underestimate how easy it is to fall asleep in the midst of war. You can just remember the scene of Gethsemane, right? Jesus says to his disciples, this is at the climax of his mission. This is at the peak hour of intensity for his ministry. He says, stay here and keep watch. Stay alert, right? Same, same language. Jesus goes and he prays and he prays in agony and then he returns and he, what happens well, he finds the disciples asleep, and he says, Simon, are you asleep? Couldn't you keep watch for one hour? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. That's that same kind of perseverance language, right? Keep alert. I feel like this sometimes when I see people sleeping during my, during my sermon. You couldn't just stay awake for one hour? I'm only going to go 45 minutes today. Once more, he went away, says Mark. And he prayed the same thing. And when he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. Do not let your eyes go heavy, brothers and sisters. Do not listen to the sweet lullaby of Satan in this land. Remain vigilant. Number three, uh, in light of the spiritual warfare, our prayers must be Catholic. Our prayers must be Catholic. Now, hold on. Don't, don't freak out on me. 
I'm not using the word, I'm not talking about Roman Catholic. I'm using the word Catholic the way it was used long before there was ever such a thing as a Roman Catholic. It, it means universal. It means you need to be not just praying about yourself in your own little corner of God's kingdom. You need to be praying Catholic prayers, prayers about the entire church. That's what that word means. We could also use universal, but I kind of just want to teach people the proper use of that word. I hope you recognize in the life of this church, how often we pray for other believers. How often we pray for people outside of our own little bubble. Did you notice it in our members meeting? We prayed for several parachurch ministries going on in the city that we're not necessarily connected to. We prayed for a new pastor taking on a difficult role right down the road from us. In our pastoral prayers every Sunday, we pray for uh, saints in a number of different ways. We pray for other churches in the area. We prayed for two churches in our area this morning. We pray for members of our own local church, but we also pray for missions and evangelism efforts. We pray for persecuted Christians and so on. We even pray for Christians that we don't fully agree with on every secondary and tertiary theological matter. We don't just pray with people who agree with us exactly on every finer point of doctrine. We pray for a bunch of different people that we don't agree with on a bunch of different things because we think that there are brothers and sisters in Christ. And we do that in obedience, I think, to today's text. I think that practice of prayer in, our life of, in the life of our church grows out of verse 18 where Paul says that when we're supposed to keep alert and be, and, and, and be persevering in our prayers, he says, making, all, making supplication for all the saints. And we see this same kind of prayer of, you know, praying outside of ourselves, praying for other people in Jesus' ministry. He prayed for the disciples in John 17. Twice in this letter alone, Paul tells the Ephesian Christians that he's been praying for them. But more than that, if you look at Paul's uh, record of prayer in the epistles, not only does he pray for churches that he's planted, but he also tells the Romans, Christians he's never met before, a church that he's never visited. He says this to them, God, whom I serve with my whole heart in preaching the gospel of his son, is my witness. How constantly I remember you in my prayers at all times. Never met him. Yet he says, you should know, and God is my witness, that I pray for you guys a lot. When we as the people of God are filled with the spirit of God, we will not only communicate the gospel to one another, but we will also pray for each other. We will take our needs before the Lord. Now, the content of these prayers matters. There's not a formula. It's not a science. We don't have to say the right things just the right way and quote, quote, X number of Bible verses in order for our prayers to be effective. But what we say does matter. As nice as safe travels and health, those kinds of prayers are, um, I think that we should probably be praying for things more profound than that, especially in light of this spiritual warfare that rages around us. Which leads me to the next sub-point, number four. In light of this spiritual warfare, our prayers need to be gospel-oriented. This is going to be the quickest sub-point of them all. If you blink, you're going to miss it. I'm just going to tell you something and let you draw an inference from what I say. As Paul is writing this letter, he sits in prison. Look at uh, verse 19. He says, For which I am an ambassador in chains... He's in prison for the sake of the gospel. And then notice what he asks the Ephesians to pray. He says, pray that words will be given to me and that I might preach the gospel in boldness. He doesn't ask for freedom. 
He doesn't ask for political reform in Rome so that he might get a fair trial. He prays about the gospel. Subpoint number five. In light of the spiritual warfare, our prayers must be prayed in the spirit. In some churches, it is a rite of passage for teenagers to receive the gift of tongues. When this happens, uh, they're usually coached uh, to be able to pray in the spirit. The coaching usually sounds something like, relax your mouth, let the syllables flow, don't force it, but don't stop it. And then as they begin to stutter and mumble, the person coaches, good, that's it, now you're getting it. And then once, you know, sometimes it's five minutes, sometimes it's 30 seconds, sometimes it's 20 minutes. Once there's been enough da-da-da-da-da language going on, and the person who's leading that feels like the person has sufficiently received the gift of tongues, then whenever the whole church is commanded to pray in tongues and to pray in the Spirit at the command of the pastor, the teenager can then participate in that prayer with the rest of the church. It's kind of like their uh, communion rite, except for instead of communion it's, and baptism, it's praying in tongues. Now, I tell you that because Ephesians 6.18 is the main scripture referenced for that practice and that kind of practice in the life of the church. So if you look at chapter 6, verse 18, it says praying at all times in the spirit. Simply put, these churches believe that praying in the Spirit is equivalent to praying in tongues. Uh, let me get right to the point. I'm going to tell you, I'm going to give you four reasons this morning why praying in the Spirit is not praying in tongues. I'm probably not going to teach on this again anytime soon, maybe in the spiritual gifts class, but while we're here in the text, I just want to give you four quick arguments, okay? Uh, so, argument number one, uh, the gift of tongues has ceased. Now, uh, if, if I'm not going to get into that argument right now. I'm not going to do like a whole sermon length on it. If, if you're curious as to know why I would say that, I would encourage you to come to our Sunday school class on the gifts that we'll be teaching here in the future. Number two, even if the gift of tongues has not ceased, so even if you were to say, Sean, I'm not buying that. I, I'm reading my 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, and I, I don't see that. Uh, even if that's not true, Paul is clear when he writes about the gift of tongues that not everyone has it. So in 1 Corinthians 12, he says this, Do all speak in tongues? And the answer there is no, not all speak in tongues. But it's clear from this text that praying in the Spirit is something that Paul expects all Christians to do. This is a letter for everyone who possesses the Spirit of God, everyone who's been given the armor of God and the weapons of God who are called to spiritual warfare. They are all supposed to be praying at all times in the Spirit. Argument number three. Paul says that Christians need to pray in the Spirit at all times. So not only should everyone be praying in the Spirit, but it's something you should be doing all the time. But Paul is clear when he writes about tongues in 1 Corinthians that uh, praying in tongues is not something that you do all the time. It's, it has a very specific purpose. It's meant to cross language barriers for the propagation of the gospel. Number four. This is probably the strongest argument. It's drawn right directly from the text. You have to remember how Paul's command to pray in the Spirit fits into the larger context of what Paul is talking about here at the end of Ephesians. He's telling the Ephesians to be strong in the Lord. And that means that they have to be dependent on God in prayer. 
But as you well know, it is possible to pray in the flesh. Right? What Paul is saying here is he's saying don't pray fleshly kind of prayers where you try to go to God in your own strength. Praying in the Spirit can also be described as praying by the Spirit or praying according to the Spirit or by the strength of the Spirit. If that doesn't make sense to you, let me just read from Romans chapter 8 where Paul basically kind of takes that little seed of an idea and spins it out a little bit and gives us some more theology. So Romans 8, 26 through 27. Listen carefully here to, the, to how analogous this language is. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. You see the language of strength and weakness here, just like in our text? For we do not know what to pray as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. This is praying in the Spirit, right? We are weak. And so even in prayer, we need God to be our strength. So when we go to God in prayer and we don't know how to pray, we don't know exactly what to pray, we can have God fill that gap for us by praying in the Spirit. Now that's, that's all well and good, but it still seems like there's something about praying in the Spirit that we have a choice over, right? I mean, it's a command. It seems like we can either obey it or not obey it. So how, how does this look in practice? What does it look like to pray in the Spirit, like in your normal prayer life? Well, I'm, I'm going to tell you how I think this works. I think we should pray with a cognizance of our own weakness, and a desire for God to fill our weakness, to be our strength in prayer. Right? As we go to God in prayer, we recognize our tendency to pray in the flesh, or to pray with a performance mentality, or our tendency to pray as a form of manipulation. Have you ever been there? You know, I'm going to use my prayers to try to get what I want from God. We know our tendency, and this is probably the, the most common a kind of bad prayer that we all practice, laziness in prayer, right? I, I'm, gonna, I'm, gonna, I'm really going to start praying more. You know, five minutes in, we're like, I can feel my phone calling me, right? Just, we're lazy in prayer. When we go to God in prayer with a recognition that this is true of ourselves, we can go to God in prayer and be mindful of our need for God to be strong for us in prayer. That, I think, is how we pray in the Spirit. And friends, you should know, ever since I came to understand this, it has helped my prayer life tremendously. It has relieved a tremendous sense of burden and guilt for me, and it's given me great hope in my prayer life. It's not perfect, but it's come a long way. Just when I go to God in prayer, I go, okay, God, you know and I know that this is not going to go well unless you are strong in me right now. So, Lord, please help me to pray by the power of your Spirit. That's what I think praying in the Spirit is. Okay, now look at verse 19. It says, And also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. Now here I think we find the bridge between point one and point two in the sermon. In point one, we see that the Spirit is the giver of words in prayer. When we're weak, when we pray in the flesh, we don't know how to pray. We don't know what to pray. We pray in the Spirit, and the Spirit gives us words as we communicate with God. Now, in verse 19, we see that the Spirit not only gives us words in prayer, but he also gives us words for proclamation. Paul says, 
pray that words may be given to me as I preach the gospel. The Spirit is the giver of words. So that leads us to point number two, communicating the gospel or proclaiming the gospel. There have been a number of times uh, in my Christian walk where I've felt compelled to be bold for the sake of the gospel. Um, And some of those, the Spirit did not compel me at all. It was just me being an idiot. But other times, I really think the gospel demanded something of me. I think it demanded me to be bold. You should know that uh, this ability, I don't feel like it comes naturally to me. Uh, I care what people think about me. I don't like to be embarrassed. I think I can handle embarrassment better than most people, but I'm still a human being. I don't like to be embarrassed, right? It's nice to be thought well of, but the gospel says things that are inherently offensive to the natural man, which makes it usually difficult for most of us to be bold in communicating the gospel, right? You're telling people things that you know are gonna make them like you less, That is a boldness inhibition built into the delivery system. Brings a certain level of anxiety with it, right? You know what I'm talking about. Sweaty palms, shortness of breath. You can hear it in somebody's voice when they're afraid. Heart's kind of beating through their chest, that kind of thing. Many athletes experience this before a big game. It's what fighters feel before combat. It's what warriors feel as they enter into the fray of battle. I think Paul probably felt this as he stood before you know, the Jewish tribunals or as he rose up to preach the gospel on Mars Hill or as he stood and prepared to deliver his like straight to the point gospel message to King Agrippa. He's like, I got five minutes with the king. I'm gonna give him the entire story of the Bible. Go, right? It's commonly thought that people who do bold things are sort of born that way and maybe that's true. Some of them are, but I think most of us, including most of the bravest men and women in history, are people who are not bold by nature, but they are compelled by Christ to stand up and to be bold in light of the reality of the gospel. It seems like the Apostle Paul fits right into that category, right? It seems like he views himself as being in need of help in the boldness department. So as he writes to the Ephesians, as he's wrapping up his letter, he says, hey guys, would you please do me a favor and go to the Lord on my behalf and ask him to help me to be bold? It seems like he fears that when the moment comes, he won't be able to pull the trigger. Now, what's really incredible about that is that Paul has pulled the trigger a hundred times in his ministry leading up to this point. You could say that his ministry has been marked by a pattern of boldness. Nevertheless, it seems like his history of of being able to stand firm in the gospel does not give him Uh, such a tremendous amount of confidence for his future ability to stand firm on the gospel that he doesn't feel like he at least needs to ask for some help from God. So he says, hey guys, pray for me, please. And I'm also sure that if Paul is asking for prayer for boldness in preaching the gospel, that this is something that he regularly prays for himself, right? It's unlikely that he's asking the Ephesians for help and he's not also praying that same thing. I think one of the main things I want you to take away from this latter half of uh, the sermon is is how important it is for us to understand the connection between uh, our our boldness in proclaiming the gospel and our connection to God in prayer. 
I'm gonna, I'm gonna show you an example of that from elsewhere in scripture, okay? Uh, Peter and John, shortly after being released from prison for preaching the gospel, right? So they've already, they've already stood firm for the gospel, but look, look what they do. It says, and now... Lord, and they're praying here. And now, Lord, look upon their threats because they said, they said, all right, we're going to let you guys go, but you better not preach the gospel again. Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. They've just suffered. They know that more suffering is coming. And so they go, God, help us. Help us to be bold. We were bold once. I don't know if I can be bold again. So they go, Lord, help us. And when they had prayed, the place in which they had gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with all boldness. So as they prayed and asked the Lord to be their helper, the Lord, particularly here in the book of Acts, which I think is a unique time in redemptive history, gave them a visible, tangible, concrete expression of his filling them with his power, filling them with his power so that they could continue to go and speak in boldness. Now, you'll notice in verse 20 of this morning's text, that Paul says that he needs to speak in boldness as I ought to speak. He says, For which I am an ambassador in chains, that I might declare it, that is the gospel, God's word, boldly as I ought to speak. I don't know if you've considered this before, but the, the gospel has an oughtness about it. There's something about the, the content of the message of the gospel that should affect the delivery of the message of the gospel. There's something about what the gospel is that means that it should be shouted from the rooftops and declared in the streets with boldness, not whispered quietly in the corner in fear and shame, embarrassment. You know what it's like to feel embarrassed about the gospel? I know what it feels like. You're talking with your coworkers ripe opportunity to say something about Jesus and you know that they're going to think you're an idiot. You know that they're going to they're look at you differently after that. And so maybe you kind of just eke something out, squeak it out. I'm not saying this to condemn anybody. I'm telling you, the reason why I'm bringing this up is because I think Paul understands this reality. I think Paul feels that same pressure that you and I feel. He probably just feels it in a stronger way. But the reality of the gospel, it has to weigh down on us, friends. Listen, God is holy. He is just. And he will do what's right. He will punish evil. What that means is that millions of people are going to die and go to hell and face his wrath. But he has sent his son, Jesus Christ, to offer the world the hope of reconciliation. And he has called us to be ambassadors of that message of hope. He has called us to be the people who deliver that message of hope. And that reality weighs so heavily on Paul that the fear and the trepidation that he experiences, he can't just, he can't keep it there. He goes, Lord, I know what I'm feeling, but I need need to have more confidence than my emotions. I need you to give me the power to be bold because the gospel demands boldness. In Acts chapter 6, the apostles understood themselves to be charged with two main responsibilities. They said, listen, we can't be, we can't be out here 
serving widows' tables. That's fine. It's good work. It's great. But we have two very important things that we cannot be distracted from. The preaching of the gospel and prayer. There's a reason why those two things are together. There's a reason why one of the pastor's main responsibilities is not just to preach the word, but also to pray the word, to be a man who prays. Because if we are not relying on the power of God by prayer, then the preaching of God's word will lose its teeth in the life of this congregation. You should know that as a, as a pastor, I feel the weight of wanting to hold back when I preach sometimes. I mean, even just now, when I, when I said the phrase, millions of people are going to die and go to hell. You don't think I know what that, what that sentence does to people? Even to Christians who believe the Bible, you don't think I, I understand the tension that that creates? When God's word says something about homosexuality, you don't think it's hard for me to say something about that? Or any, you know, just pick the issue. The issue may be homosexuality today. It may be something else tomorrow. It was something else 100 years ago. But we feel the weight of that. I, I, I wrestle with the temptation to not preach the whole counsel of God because I recognize how repulsive the whole counsel of God can be to unbelievers and sometimes even to people professing to be believers because we've got so much of the world in us. And so I wrestle with the temptation to hold back and to preach with timidity sometimes rather than boldness. So members of Sixth Avenue, I'm just asking you this morning, please, please pray for me and pray for the other elders in this church. And pray for missionaries and seminary professors and people who are doing good parachurch ministry work around the gospel. Please pray for everyone who is proclaiming the gospel as their main work. Pray for us that we would be as bold as the gospel demands that we should be for its sake. It's often said that bravery is not a lack of fear. Rather, it's the ability to look fear in the face and then go forward anyways right? The soldier, knowing that he's probably going to get shot when he flies out of the foxhole, nevertheless, he gets up and he goes, and he tries to make it through no man's land. I think, I think the same thing is true of boldness. I think we have to remember that boldness is not standing up and being fearless. Boldness is the ability to stand up even when we're afraid to stand up. It's the ability to say hard things even when it's hard to say those hard things, most of us know the story of Martin Luther at the Diet of Worms. And when I say most of us, I mean some of us. Uh, if you're not familiar with that, guys, this book is so good. It's so helpful. It's over there in the bookstall. It's about the Reformation. If you're like, yeah, but man, I really don't like history. This is the best history reading. It's so well written. It's so easy to read. It's genuinely fun and entertaining to read. So if you want to know more about some of what I'm about to talk about, I would encourage you to get this. It's for like 11 bucks. It's it's one of the best ways you can spend 11 bucks. I want to encourage you to go get a copy and read it. But the story of Martin Luther at the Diet of Worms uh, is that he was called there uh, by the Roman Catholic Church, commanded to retract his writings on the gospel and on the Roman Catholic Church and the Pope. But most people don't know how anxious Luther was during that trial. They don't know that he was pacing the floor in his room terrified of what was to come. They don't know that twice 
he asked them if he could have more time to consider their call for him to, to uh, retract his writings. Now, Luther's response to his inquisitors is really famous today. We use it in Sunday school lessons and Bible and sermon illustrations when we want to communicate something about boldness, right? And it's an amazing picture. Martin Luther is standing there before these men who are certainly going to take his life, and he says, here I stand, for I can do no other. That's my Martin Luther impersonation. Imagine it in German with like a bald head and hair. It would be much better that way. Here I stand, for I can do no other, right? Really powerful stuff. Except for that's not at all how it happened. People who were there in the trial say that Luther said those words so quietly he could almost not be heard. Luther was terrified. Luther knows what happens in those days to Roman Catholic heretics. He would likely be tortured and killed. We think a man standing bold on a platform and here I stand, I can do no other, but really it was probably here I stand. You know, I I can't do anything else, you know? But that is still boldness because he stuck to the truth of the gospel even in light of his fear. I hope you understand that boldness for Christ is not just a category for pastors and evangelists and missionaries. The gospel will require all of us to be bold at one point or another. If you're a teenager here this morning and you think that you're a Christian, okay, you should know that the gospel demands something of you in relation to how you communicate it. I know that the gospel may not make you popular in school or with your friends. But you still, if you're a Christian, boldness doesn't have like an age limit. It's not like, it's not like Christ wants you to be bold when you turn 21. Until then, you can kind of, you know, just try to be cool and popular. Maybe Jesus is calling us to be bold and having that hard conversation with a family member. I think about Blaine who recently told me about a conversation that he had with one of his parents about the sake of the gospel. And when he told me what he said to his parents, I was shocked and stunned because of how incredibly bold it was. And knowing Blaine, I'm sure it was very gentle and I'm sure you know, there was no sharp edges on it at all. But I mean, it's a very hard thing for a son to say to their parents, especially, I mean, he has such a great relationship with his parents. Nevertheless, he felt compelled by the sake of the gospel, for the sake of the gospel to say something difficult to them. The gospel requires us to be bold in having conversations with each other in the life of this church. Speaking the truth to one another in love, that's such a great scripture verse. It goes, you know, you can quilt it, you can put it on a pillow, put it in your house, but speaking the truth to one another in love usually is something like this. Tim, after church, buddy, can, uh, can I see you in my office, man? I just, I need to talk to you about something. That requires boldness, right? That sinking feeling that you get when you know that you're about to have that hard conversation for the sake of Jesus, that requires boldness. And we could just kind of keep trotting out the examples. But boldness for the sake of Jesus is part of all of our job description as Christians. Now, you can count on the fact that the world will almost certainly view your boldness as arrogance. Count on it. It is incredibly difficult, even if we're being charitable, to differentiate between confidence and cockiness in a world that's shot through with pride. Therefore, we should strive, insofar as it is possible for us to do, we should strive to make sure that our boldness is not arrogance. 
I say that as someone who's failed a thousand times. Help me, Lord, to do better. I'm trying to strike the balance, but I'm not going to give up on boldness just because I failed and spoken in arrogance. I'm going to try to put my arrogance to death and grow in boldness. This is not a balance that Martin Luther struck particularly well, by the way, you should know. Uh, there are some, some brands of Christianity that view boldness and humility as sort of in competition with one another, but I want to tell you the opposite is actually true. The only way you can really be bold for the sake of the gospel is if you're humble. You just have to be humble in the right way. You have to be humble towards God and his word and what, what he has revealed to be true. If you can be humble and submit to that, then you can have real boldness grounded in humility and not at all in arrogance. I still remember, uh, so I profited from the ministry of John MacArthur for, for years now. He's done a lot of great things, written a lot of great stuff. I always had the impression from a distance that he was uh, arrogant. That he, he just seemed a little cocky. Um, and as, a, as one arrogant person to another, I didn't care for it, I gotta tell you. One day I was talking to one of his closest friends, uh, somebody who's perhaps one of the most humble men I know, and, uh, and, and I asked him when, when it was appropriate, I said, hey, you know, you're friends with MacArthur. I wanted to say, you're friends with John, but I didn't feel like I was on that level, you know. I didn't feel like I could refer to him by his first name. I said, hey, you're friends with MacArthur, right? I said, is he as arrogant in person as he seems to come off at a distance? And uh, my friend responded, and he said, uh, John MacArthur is the most humble man I've ever met. And I was really shocked to hear that. I mean, that was that's superlative language. And this is a friend who's not prone to the superlative. So I, I, I said, well, what do you mean? And he said, well, he said, John is completely under the submission of God's word. For, for John MacArthur, God's word is big. God is massive. Man, in his opinion, is tiny. And when you have such a small opinion of man and you have so little fear of man and such a robust trust and confidence in the Lord, you will be so bold for the gospel that it may come across as arrogance. And I think the same thing will be true of us. Our confidence in the truth and the power of Jesus Christ and his gospel will reek of arrogance to a lost and dying world and maybe even to other, other professing Christians. But we must stand, true, stand on God's word as the truth. Going back to Peter and John in Acts chapter 4, we read this. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go. This is the perfect blend of boldness and humility. We're going to go out and we're going to preach the truth because we know it to be true. You can decide whether or not we're right or wrong, but we have to just say what we know to be true. The same person who was there in Acts chapter 4 wrote this to suffering Christians in 1 Peter 3. But in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. So be ready. Be ready. Be prepared to talk about Jesus. Be ready to talk about the gospel. Be ready to stand firm on God's truth. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. I think that's one of the main ways that we can uh, try to, we can't stop the world from misunderstanding us 
And they're still going to think we're arrogant, even if we're being humble. We can't avoid that. But one of the best ways we can sort of make sure that we can look ourselves in the mirror and with a good conscience say, I know that that's not my fault, it's their fault, is if we're just striving to communicate the gospel at all times with gentleness and respect. So not only, I'm asking you not only to pray for me and the elders of this church and missionaries and so on and so forth, that we would be bold, but also pray that we would strike this balance as well. Uh, in closing, I want to I hit one final point about boldness. Uh, the Supreme Court just ruled, by the way, that uh, Harvard, who has been shown to have a, a specific racial bias in not admitting a high percentage of qualified Asians into the university, and that went all the way up to the Supreme Court. It was, uh, the case was that you know, Harvard was, they had uh, uh, ethnic discrimination, okay, racial bias and discrimination. It went all the way to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court ruled that they are okay to practice admissions in that way, that they are free to discriminate against Asians for admittance into the university. And I'm probably not stating that as well as I should, but you get the idea. Now, listen, I'm not so sure that that's the right decision from the Supreme Court. But I could be wrong, right? Think about Trump building a wall, okay? He's building it, you know, like 500 feet at a time, he's building it. Is Jesus for that or against it? Well, based off my social media feed, uh, half of Christendom thinks that Jesus is 100% for building the wall. He is all about having secure borders. He thinks the best way to love our neighbors is to prevent people from entering the country illegal. Now, if you listen to the other half of my Twitter feed, Jesus is 100% absolutely against putting up a wall. He would never put up a wall. He would never keep the immigrant out of the country. Jesus doesn't believe in national sovereignty and secure borders. No, none of that. I want to make a political comment here about walls in China and France, but I'm not going to. I'm not going to make that comment. Anyways, the, the point is, everyone on my Twitter feed seems to be so bold in what they think about Jesus would say about the wall that Trump is building. But many of those same people don't possess that same kind of boldness when it comes to proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. Friends, we have to make sure that we are being bold about the right things. You know, listen, I'm a gun guy, but I could be wrong about Second Amendment rights. You know, I don't particularly care about evangelism, but I could show up one day to the gates, um, not evangelism, oh, Lord, help me now. <laughs> I'm glad I caught myself. Environmentalism. Lord, you know I care. I don't particularly care about environmentalism. I mean, I think we should be good stewards. I talked about that in our Sunday school class. But like, you know, I don't think the earth is going to end in 12 years or even in 120 years, okay? But I could be wrong about that. I could show up at the pearly gates and Christ could say, you know what, Sean? You should have cared more about keeping my earth in good shape. And I'm like, yeah, I probably shouldn't have thrown that gum wrapper out the window. But it's so easy for us as Christians to slide into this temptation where we're, we're so tired of being hated and disliked because that's what the gospel does with us in the world that we start to be so bold about these secondary and tertiary matters. We're going to be bold about all these things that really don't matter at all. If we're going to have, if we have a certain amount of boldness capital, we need to make sure that we're burning it for all the right reasons. 
I'm not going to waste any capital with the world going out and picketing over environmentalism. I could be right about that. I could be wrong about it. But you know what? I'm not wrong about the fact that God is holy. Man is sinful and lost. And the only hope for any of us is to trust in Jesus Christ for salvation. So that's what I want to be bold about. Now, the reality is, is that the gospel will touch on other things outside of that. And there are times to be bold about that. But I just think we need to be slow and careful and prayerful and we need to be always looking at ourselves and asking, am I being bold about the right thing? Am I, am I shifting one way or another? And this is not just, this is for the left and the right. Okay, guys? We need to make sure we're being bold about the right things. As Paul sits there in chains, waiting for his hearing with the emperor, where he knows he may be put to death, Paul has one thing and one thing only on his mind. The gospel of Jesus Christ. May that be true for us as well. Let me pray. Father, I pray that you, would, uh, that you would lead us by your spirit even as we sing this last song and we hear your word. Bless us as we go back out into this lost and dying world. We confess our weakness to you, but we also rejoice and find our hope in your strength that you make available to us by the power of your spirit. And we pray this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, the name above all names. Amen. Amen. Please stand.